Good morning. My name is David. I am a three-month-old priest here at Incarnation. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you all this morning. Um, we didn't intentionally do a series on the book of Hebrews, but it so happened that this is going to be your third week in a row of Hebrews. Um, we come to a part of the book that seems like miscellaneous instructions or a pious to-do list. Um, and in some ways, it's kind of refreshing. Um, after we've had a lot of lofty theological reflection, you know, the heavenly temple and Jesus, the great high priest, we're finally given some practical guidance on how to live. If you're asking, so what am I supposed to do with all of that, referring to all 12 chapters until now, then chapter 13 is for you. That's not entirely fair to the rest of the letter, of course. Um, all of Hebrews is meant to encourage Christians to keep on keeping on in the faith. One of its primary images is of the Israelites wandering through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. So in that sense, the whole book is of practical importance. The main takeaway is, keep going. However, that raises a further question. How? How is a weary believer supposed to keep going? It's not coincidental that the concrete instructions on how to live follow on the deep reflection of who Jesus is and what he's done to accomplish the salvation of his people. It is one of the most basic principles in the Bible that what we are to do is grounded in or flows from what God has already done for us. We see this in both Old and New Testaments. It's the idea that God saves first, then his people are to respond in thankful obedience. They do not obey in order to be saved. They are to obey because they have been saved. We see this already in the most famous law ever given, the Ten Commandments. They don't start with the thou shalt nots. They start with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The people of Israel are not told to abide, abide by God's law in order to be redeemed. They bear an obligation because they are already redeemed. This is known among biblical scholars and grammar nerds as the movement from the indicative to the imperative. These are terms for stating what is to what ought to be. The imperative here at the end of Hebrews is centered on love. In fact, there appears to be a significant amount of wordplay in the original Greek that serves to emphasize the centrality of love to the Christian way of life. Three terms stand out in particular that are all built on the same root for love, philia. These are words you may have picked up on or may remember in other translations being rendered as brotherly love, that's Philadelphia, hospitality, philoxenia, and then an antonym for greed, which is aphilargyros, which I will simply call contentment. You could look at verse 1 of Hebrews 13 as sort of the thesis statement of what follows. If you want to know what Christian love looks like in concrete terms, that is lived out in community, Hebrews 13 says this is what it looks like. It says in the first place, let brotherly love continue. Let it continue or let it remain reflects the author's confidence that the Christians in this community are already practicing this kind of love. The letter to the Hebrews is not interested in laying down an impersonal law or code, cracking the whip to get this community to shape up or ship out. To be sure, it is calling for obedience, but it's the kind of obedience 
that is faithfulness. It is calling on God's people to persevere on a path God has already put them on. Now, brotherly love was a widely shared virtue in the world of the early Christians. So, in one sense, Philadelphia is not all that distinctive. But on the other hand, the early Christians' contemporaries were perplexed at just how much Christians referred to each other and treated each other as brother and sister. This seems to have been their default way of referring to each other. It was so notable that a common slander or accusation against Christians was that they practiced incest. That was how notable this brother-sister language was. Of course, the basis of Christian sisterhood and brotherhood lies in Jesus Christ, who is God's only son by nature, that means in and of himself. But because of his death and resurrection, by faith, we become Christ's adopted brothers and sisters and are therefore now related to each other as spiritual siblings. We use this language because it reflects something real about who we are in Christ. As it says in 1 John 3, 1, See how great a gift the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God. In a world marked by rigid hierarchies, Christian Philadelphia, or brotherly love, must come off as bizarrely egalitarian, perhaps even subversive. In the kingdom of God, an emperor stands on the same plane as a peasant. The CEO has nothing over the groundskeeper. As scripture says elsewhere, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, for all are one in Christ. And lastly, this pattern of brotherly love to which we are called foreshadows things to come. It has a future orientation as well. For this, there is a fullness of the kingdom that is still coming, where everyone is sister and brother to all. So this is a present testimony to a future hope. Now, if brotherly love or Philadelphia marks the relationships within the Christian community, then hospitality kindness to strangers, if you will, marks the relationship between Christians and outsiders. This was the term philoxenia. And in this case, this word really concretely, literally refers to foreigners, outsiders, or strangers. We could render it as love for the stranger or kindness to the foreigner. Now, few would find the idea of brotherly love offensive, but it becomes much trickier when we start to ask what kind of relationship should exist between those inside the church and those outside of it. If we are adopted as children of God, such that now we are brothers and sisters to Christ and to each other, then in that particular sense, Philadelphia, brotherly love, is a unique relationship within the community of faith. I say it becomes trickier when it comes to those outside of the church because there can be, on the one hand, a temptation to ignore that particularity of Christian brotherhood and sisterhood. But on the other hand, it can come all too easy to ignore our common humanity and to feel little to no need at all to stand in solidarity with outsiders. In our current time and place, this problem gives rise to one of the sharpest disagreements among Christians today, which is how Christian faith should shape our public life. The answer Hebrews offers is straightforward. 
It's Philadelphia inside the church, Philoxenia outside the church. Just as one must show love towards one's family, one must show love to the stranger. Out of all the different reasons this letter could have chosen to encourage kindness to strangers, and there are lots of them that you'll find elsewhere in the Bible, it uses a rather strange one, which, is, which uh, states that by showing hospitality to strangers, some have entertained or hosted angels unawares. The implication is quite remarkable. Don't turn away a stranger or foreigner, for in so doing, you might just be turning away an angel. A few weeks ago, Amy preached a lovely sermon on Abraham's uh, three visitors, whom Abraham, you know, basically pulled out all the stops to host. He didn't know who they were, but he knew there was something about them. And the text of Genesis 18 kind of flips almost interchangeably between referring to these men and the Lord. So it's a visit from men, but a visit from the Lord. And by the time Hebrews is written, it is a common way to understand Genesis 18 as saying, Abraham hosted three angels who in some way represent or stand in for God. We've probably all seen the famous uh, icon of three angels very gracefully reclining at a table as Abraham um, wines and dines them. In any event, the book of Hebrews is very interested in the figure of Abraham. So this is not an innocent, uh, an innocent comparison. I have an interesting story that my grandmother loves to tell about angels, and it involves me, not the angel. Um, this takes place at Disney World, of all places. I was about five years old, and we were about to get on the monorail to take us into the park. Um, for those of you who haven't been, it's this nice little elevated train that will take you from the parking area to a distant next county where the actual fun is. Um, <laughs> anyway, I insisted I hold my own ticket. And of course, while we're waiting, I drop the ticket down into the pit where the tracks of the monorail are. And it's about, I don't know, eight or so feet down. And one of my relatives was going to lower me into that pit to retrieve the ticket until a stranger shows up with, um, what do you call that little bucket on a stick? Is that a, a butler? Is, we call it? Is that what it's called? You know what I'm talking about? You know, a custodian will sweep something into the bucket on a stick. Anyway, the guy with the bucket on a stick comes, sweeps the ticket in, pulls it up, hands it to me, and I don't die. <laughs> he spared me about 10,000 volts, as he later informed us. My grandmother loves to say that was an encounter with an angel. This man who appeared out of nowhere came, um, park employee, no doubt. Um, but in her mind, that, is, that was an angel. And I think that that is an entirely appropriate way of remembering that event. Um, what's interesting is how we often think of angels as these semi-divine beings that come to earth to help us, the mortals. And in whatever form they might appear, they wield a supernatural power or reveal some special knowledge. But the type of angelic vision, uh, angelic visit rather, that is envisioned by Hebrews is that of a stranger in need. The roles are flipped. The angel comes in need of care, and we are the ones who are supposed to help them. In a way, this text confronts us with a question of how we treat a stranger or foreigner. 
Think about it. If we knew that the panhandler on the street was an angel, would we treat him or her any differently than we do now? It's worth thinking about. Or perhaps it's the migrant on the border, or the inmate on death row, or a sick patient who can't afford their bills. Anybody whose background or needs are foreign to our own. What would it mean to really, truly approach them as angels sent by God? In other words, God calls us not only to treat others, outsiders, as human beings, we're called to go further, to treat them as angels. Indeed, if you look elsewhere, you'll find Jesus himself teaching us to treat others no differently than we would treat him. By alerting us to the presence of angels among foreigners, Hebrews undercuts certain objections we might have to treating them kindly. Perhaps it's human nature, perhaps it's a culture thing, but all too often we first want to find out how deserving others are before we help them. But all the conditions we might impose on the foreigner or the stranger are now off the table. Who they are, where they're from, what they've done, none of that matters. If you are visited by an outsider, you show them hospitality, like Abraham did for his angelic guests. It reminds me of one of my favorite lines from the um, Wonder Woman movie, the first one, not the strange second one. When Wonder Woman gets all jaded about saving humans after seeing how terribly they treat each other and with what great violence, she decides she's done. They don't deserve my help. She's a kind of a demigod uh, in the movie. And uh, her, you know, romantic interest played by Chris Pine, um, he will respond back to her. And what he says is, look, it's not about what they deserve. It's about what you believe. So it is here. How we treat others, how we treat foreigners and outsiders, it has absolutely nothing to do with how deserving they might be or what they might do with whatever aid you want to give them. They are to be treated as angels. The third love, this is sort of an opposite of love, it's aphilagiras. Philagiros means greed or love of money, and then there's a little prefix that makes it not that. (laughs) Um, So in addition to brotherly love and love for the stranger, Hebrews commands freedom from love of money. So if Philadelphia represents love inside the Christian community, and philoxenia stands for love towards the outsider, aphilagiros represents the Christian's relationship with things, that is, possessions. It's an antonym for greed. And in Hebrews 13.5, greed is contrasted with contentment. So the positive term I'll use here is contentment. There is a long-standing tradition of reading verses like this as saying that money is not a problem in and of itself. The problem is the love of money. As long as I don't love the money, I can keep the money. So the thinking goes anyway. The problem with this perspective as I see it, is that the only way you could actually know that you're free from the love of money is to part with it. In other words, Hebrews is commanding or commending a modest lifestyle, modest with respect to wealth. 
You know, as we used to sing quite recently um, with the children every Sunday, you know, tis a gift to be simple, tis a gift to be free. The opposite of the love of money, of course, is contentment, or it will go further, reliance on God. As it says in verses 5 and 6, Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can anyone do to me? Therefore, freedom from love of money shows people where you actually put your trust. Money will most certainly leave or forsake you. And if we truly believe the promises of God, we not only have no need to rely on riches, to depend on them undermines our claim to trust in the Lord. Of course, the question we will all want to ask is how modest is modest enough? How content is contented enough? And of course, it does not say, I don't think it could say, anything that it listed, we would probably find a way of getting around. This is more of an internal question that one must face with God and in their community. I would say that, at minimum, if your love of money, or maybe you don't think you have love of money, let's just say your actual money, gets in the way of Philadelphia or Philoxenia, then one is not content with what they have. For if they were, one would have something to spare for love of brother or love of the stranger. In conclusion, these are concrete loves. They are not warm feelings and well wishes towards others. Love does things. It can be seen with the eyes. Brotherly love overcomes social hierarchies. It causes the powerful and the powerless, the rich and the poor, the great and the small, to come together as one community. Love for the stranger or foreigner looks like what Abraham did for his very strange guests. It opens doors, it spreads a table, it prepares food for them. And freedom from love of money shows up in one's lifestyle. It is a life of simplicity that is content to let the Lord provide. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the redemption you have accomplished for us in who Jesus is and in what he has done for us and how he intercedes for us now in your presence. We pray, God, now that out of thanksgiving, we would follow in his path. We pray that you would encourage our hearts to continue in this way of love on which you have already set us. We pray that you would kindle within us a love of neighbor, love of brother, love of the stranger, and freedom from love of money such that we can become more fully formed in his image. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.